Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a major development regarding that special grand jury report looking into possible criminal conduct into Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney has decided what will be released and what won't be released from the investigation. We'll find out all about that in just a moment. And also, we're halfway there. That is the midway of this legislative session. Some bills appear to be sailing through, others not so much. We'll check in with our WABE politics reporters ahead of a very busy week for state lawmakers. And also, immigrant rights advocates say documents raise serious questions about the treatment of black migrants by the U.S. government. Plus, we're getting older and the labor market shows it. That's not my opinion. That's the actual the name of a new report revealing the aging population is a big reason for the current worker shortage and also has ties to inflation over the past 18 months. We'll talk about all of that in just a moment. But first, a check of these headlines. It wasn't until just days ago that there was uncertainty from the IRS surrounding state payments like inflation. Just a bit ahead of that, uh, but. As I said, many Georgians will not have to pay taxes on special state payments made during 2020. That's according to the IRS, as we hear from Alex Helmick. It wasn't until just days ago that there was uncertainty from the IRS surrounding state payments like inflation relief checks. Georgia gave relief money to many residents under a certain salary range. It got to a point where the IRS said, hold off on filing taxes. But now the agency says it will not tax most payments. For Georgians, that means refunds where a standard deduction was claimed or they itemized their deductions but did not get a tax benefit. Officials say consult an expert if you're unsure of the last minute ruling and what it means for you, which is getting blowback, by the way, from a number of state politicians as 21 states had special relief payments in 2022. Alex Helmick, WAB News. In other news, the Fulton Reparations Task Force could be the first official county-level group to consider financial compensation for the descendants of former slaves. That's according to Kershik Sims-Avarado, Morehouse professor and chair of the task force. She says the county still has a long way to go to make right the injustices that helped build Atlanta. We love celebrating our civil rights accomplishments, but we need to remind ourselves that it was a battle here in Fulton County to secure civil and human rights for African-Americans. Fulton recently approved a $250,000 budget for the task force in 2023. The money is for a study on the specific effects of slavery and Jim Crow policies in Fulton and what the county can now do about it. And you can hear more on this story later today during All Things Considered. The city of Decatur is again allowing some multifamily homes on single-family lots. Emily Wu Pearson reports this type of housing used to be allowed in Decatur up until the late 80s. The kinds of housing Decatur is reintroducing fall between a single-family home and an apartment complex, so duplexes, triplexes, and quads, or single-family homes with an accessory unit. And this kind of housing can already be found in Decatur and in other parts of Metro Atlanta. Decatur is bringing some of this housing back to address housing affordability in the area. What we saw from our uh, from our research is just how dramatically prices have increased because we are in a desirable area as well. That's Kristen Allen. She was a city planner for Decatur working on affordable housing initiatives. And then when they're forced out of those homes, you know, people typically tear that home down. And because there's only been one option, They build a big single family home and that cycle continues and continues. And the only option is an expensive one. So last week, the Decatur City Commission unanimously adopted multifamily zoning amendments that will go into effect at the end of June. 
but that was against the recommendation of the city's planning commission, who still had questions after hearing more than six hours of testimony from residents both for and against the plan. Like from David Zimmer, a resident of Decatur who said he was concerned about the quality of life in neighborhoods with this kind of housing. Having rental units leads to less responsibility in many cases, and um, the increased density is going to add to traffic and noise in addition to that. There should be more thought given to quality of life issues and not just um, diversity and affordability. Only a handful of permits will be approved initially, and the city will assess how reintroducing multifamily zoning is affecting housing affordability. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And finally, the funeral for Atlanta's former First Lady Bunny Jackson Ransom took place today at Ebenezer Baptist Church. She was the first wife of of Mayor Maynard Jackson, and she was the city's first black First Lady. Bunny Jackson Ransom leaves behind her own legacy of activism during the height of the civil rights movement as well, and for decades owned a public relations firm and was considered one of the city's most influential businesswomen. Jackson Ransom passed away surrounded by her family at at Emory Hospital earlier this month. She was 82 years old. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Georgia state lawmakers are about to hit the halfway mark in this legislative session. From gambling to runoff elections and, yes, raw milk once again, there's a lot to review. But before we get to all this, we know there's some breaking news regarding that special grand jury investigating alleged election interference by former President Donald Trump. Judge Robert McBurney has ordered most of the jury's final recommendations, but we won't tell you. I'll let the politics reporters tell you that because they're joining me live from the steps of the state capitol. Let's welcome Sam Greenglass first. Sam, thanks for taking the time. Hey there, Russ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Some some big news. You've been waiting on this, right? Yeah, we have been kind of waiting with bated breath for, it's about three weeks now that uh, we've been kind of refreshing the docket, constantly waiting for this decision. And we do have a little bit more news today, at least. Maybe not the big decision we were waiting for, and All that's right. that some, some pieces of this will All be right. released. Before we get to that, let's just back up for our listeners who were, I don't know, maybe on another planet, but for a quick refresher, what does this report, what were they looking at specifically? So there's this special grand jury, which has been investigating for about eight months uh, efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election result in Georgia. They heard from about 75 witnesses. And once this investigation basically concluded they had to write a final report and that report might include recommendations for some indictments uh the special grand jury cannot do that on their own so these would just be recommendations and that's kind of what we are looking really to this special report to find out whether we get that part of the report it is looking like not yet and there were some who obviously wanted the report to be public, others that didn't want any of it. Uh, Let's start with those who wanted the report to be public. So we heard from lawyers for a group of media outlets, uh, both here in Atlanta and national outlets, who were calling for the report to be published immediately and in full. Uh, That is not, it appears, what we're going to be getting. And uh, on the flip side, you had uh, Prosecutor Fonnie Willis and uh, the rest of the district attorneys uh, who were saying, nope, we don't want this report published at least right now because we are actively in the process of weighing whether there should be criminal indictments Mm -hmm. here. So what reasons did Judge McBurney give for blocking parts of the report? 
So the main reason that he lays out is that we have to remember that a special grand jury by its nature is kind of a one-sided investigation. You know, the, there's not lawyers for potential targets of this investigation who are getting to testify or oppose, you know, what's being said in these proceedings. You know, it's the prosecutor who's leading this charge here. And so McBurney basically says that whoever may be uh, the focus of this report wouldn't have had a chance for the due process that they would get in, you know, a normal court trial. And so that whatever recommendations are laid out here are going to be lasting in the public memory for much longer than whatever rebuttals these guys might put out, you know, once this report is released. So Sam, And so that was kind of the main reason. Oh, okay. And so, Sam, what can we expect in terms of the public portion of this report and when? Uh, so this will be Thursday. We have a date now, which is great. But I don't think we can expect very much out of this. There's going to be an introduction. There's going to be a conclusion. Neither of those portions will include specific recommendations, which is what everyone's really rating for. And the other piece that will be in this public portion is a section in which the special grand jury lays out their concern that some of the witnesses who testified actually lied under oath in front of the grand jury. And this will be released because those witnesses aren't going to be named that portion. So it'll just be some witnesses, but we won't know which witnesses. Correct. I see. (laughs) Have you heard any reactions from the district attorney's office or the media outlets who are lobbying for the report with no, no Uh, reactions? Yeah, last I checked, uh, lawyers for the media outlets uh, have not weighed in on this yet. I mean, there is an appeal process that's available. Prosecutor Fawny Willis told the AJC today that she is happy with this decision, thinks it's fair, and is not planning on appealing it. So an introductory and a summary, which you could have written because you've been covering this. (laughs) No no slides of Judge McBurney, and I hope he doesn't come after me because I think he likes me. But, I mean, really. (laughs) It's like cliff notes, huh? As much as we've been waiting for this moment, I would say this is kind of a, an important development, but a minor one in the, the scheme of things. Uh, I think at this point, the big thing that we'll be waiting for is uh, a point when uh, Prosecutor Fonnie Willis potentially comes out and says whether or not she is pursuing criminal charges for anyone. Uh, a couple weeks ago, she said that decision was imminent. Uh, and to do that, she can't just make that decision unilaterally. She has to go in front of a regular grand jury, a standing grand jury, and, and ask them to agree with her. And I think that's really the next thing we'll be waiting for after the, these little bits of the report are released. All right, Sam, I know you have to go. We thank you so much for your time, as always. We now turn to the other half of our political reporting duo, Raul Bali. Welcome. Hello. Do you you have anything as exciting as a redacted special report that could be coming? (laughs) No, I mean, that's that's what people are talking about, about what will be in that report whenever that is. Well, listen, the legislative session hits the halfway mark on Thursday. What's the mood like at the Capitol? Everybody getting along and everybody, you know, high-fiving each other and smiling? Is it it all uh, a positive environment under the Gold Dome? I mean... We just haven't had those firework bills yet, you know. I mean, a, a handful of bills, you, a push here, a push there. We're going to talk about uh, uh, one of the bills that, that's, that did get some, you know, fireworks. But a lot of the bills have been, you know, one-sided. Everyone passes kind of bill. And, you know, when you mention around the Capitol that this Thursday is halfway, the reactions are either wow or geez or really or a little bit of nervousness from people who've either not filed their bills yet or they're, they're focused on a specific issue and they already can feel the clock kind of ticking. Let me ask you this. Is it, for listeners who may not be familiar with how this works, we, when we get to the halfway point, if you haven't filed your bill yet, I mean, odds are, they ain't going to happen. Yeah, that's, that's why I think there's so many bills being filed right now. I mean, it, it is so busy uh, in the clerk's office right now. I just went through a pile of bills like just a moment ago and everybody's filing their bills. You're right. People are starting to feel that if I want to get a bill through this year, I need to file it probably this week and at the absolute latest next week. Now, you've been following some legislation related to sports gambling, and we we've, we can pretty much forget anything concerning a, cons- a casino, but maybe online betting. Of course, we just had the Super Bowl yesterday. What's the latest here? Mm-hmm. So a bill was just filed. And when I mean just filed, they haven't even printed it yet. It's it's House Bill 380. So I haven't had the chance to read it. But my understanding is 
It is only online sports betting. It makes no reference to horse racing, no reference to casino gambling. Uh, it's different from the other major uh, casino bill that's out there. That's Senate Bill 57. And that one actually gets uh, a hearing tomorrow morning. Look, the issues around this are, does there need to be a constitutional amendment to expand gambling? Mm -hmm. Proponents, most proponents are saying is no. To, to do online sports betting, it can be done under the Georgia lottery. Mm. Uh, opponents are saying, no, you need to do a constitutional amendment to expand any kind of gambling. Also, um, you know, proponents keep saying, look, your online sports betting is happening. You know, there was a lot of money probably bet yesterday, some of it in Georgia, and the state of Georgia is missing out on those funds. And one other important thing that kind of got missed last week uh, is House Speaker John Burns speaking uh, at the at uh, UGA. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a very interesting quote that came out of him, quote, I don't think this year will that we'll see casinos move forward or horse racing, unquote. So, oh. you know, a, a quote like that kind of tells me it's online sports betting or nothing. And before the session started, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger asked lawmakers to look at ending runoff elections in Georgia. Of course, we've I've had a conversation with him. Uh, no one has really come up with what could replace it. Any progress there? You know, I... There are a lot of people who are unhappy about runoffs, but the question is, what do you do with it? Do you do ranked choice voting, which allows for instant runoffs? That's currently done for overseas ballots and soldiers who are voting. Or do you lower the, the current rule, which is the 50 plus one rule? You've got to have 50% of the vote plus one vote. Mm -hmm. Do you lower that standard to 45% or even 40%? But let me tell you something interesting. I have now started hearing from a couple of lawmakers including one powerful Republican lawmaker, is like, why don't we just leave it alone? Why don't we just stay at 50% plus one? And I was like, you want to go on tape? He goes, I don't think I want to go on tape with that yet. <laughs> but you're, you're starting to get a sense that maybe just leave it alone. So it's going to be interesting. You're right. The secretary says it's time to do something about runoff elections, especially specifically general election runoffs. Mm -hmm. But we'll see where that goes. Now, last session, the late Speaker David Roston, of course, championed the mental health reform as a priority that breezed through. But it sounds like you are expecting another major bill to come this week, right? That's my expectation. I'm hearing the final touches are, are being put on, on that kind of legislation. And my understanding is the big focus on this one is going to be workforce. You know, having enough mental health providers, substance abuse providers, kind of focusing on that area. And, and I mean, we've had clues that this was coming because many of the hearings that were held off session uh, and on session have kind of focused on this workforce because the whole idea is even if you expand coverage in the state of Georgia, even if you you know make coverage, even if you have mental health parity, it doesn't matter if there's no one there to provide the services. And so that's that's where my expectation is that legislation will go. And there are a couple of uh, other measures. Now, lawmakers are looking at allowing for heavier truck weight limits, but there was some opposition from GDOT during a hearing. What's this all about? Let me, let me tell you something. That So that hearing was on Thursday. Um, and that Thursday, that hearing was supposed scheduled for two hours. It almost hit six hours. It was a long, long hearing. And here are the basics. Right now, in the state of Georgia, the max weight for most trucks is 80,000 pounds. There's some exceptions that allow for 84,000 pounds. There's legislation to raise that number to 90,000, and that's on all roads except interstates because interstates are handled by the federal government. But it would be for all other roads. The industries that are supporting this, the big ones are agriculture mm -hmm. and the forestry industry saying, look, it allows us to take bigger loads, make more money. But you know, some of the other interesting things that they brought up, they brought up the driver shortage. Mm -hmm. they, uh, mentioned, they said that there would be actually less trips with heavier loads uh, and less wear and tear because there are less trips. Now the people opposing it, as you mentioned, the Department of Transportation, they not only the DOT commissioner came, uh, came and testified, they also brought the chief engineer of Georgia DOT. Hmm. And, and she laid out that, look, adding five tons is not it's not a linear more wear and tear. It's exponentially more wear and tear on Georgia's bridges, on Georgia's pavement, and that it's going to cost local governments, city governments um, and the state government billions of dollars of more money to put heavier trucks on the road. Again, a long hearing. This is kind of that basic battle of 
you know, you know, local and city government. Oh, and safety advocates also said, look, if you're going to put five more tons mm -hmm. on this truck, it's going to be that much longer to stop the truck. So you've got safety advocates and, and the DOT and, and local county go city governments worried about what it will cost. On the other side, you have industry saying, look, this is going to help us. Just kind of a basic battle. That legislation passed the committee 18 to 11. Oh. Now heads, we'll, we'll see what, what happens when it goes on the House floor. But let me tell you, local governments, their voices carry a big weight with, with state lawmakers. I'm going to be interested to see what happens. And before I let you go, it, it's a listener favorite. Listen, this whole deal about raw milk now, every so, year. But what what's the latest? Look, folks. So, <laughs> Just to remind people, it did pass last year. So the raw milk bill did pass last year, signed by the governor, giving the power. So for those who don't know, raw milk for human consumption is illegal in Georgia. Mm -hmm. But people have figured out a way to get around it. The legislation did get passed last year. So now it's an important next step is what happened. So what has happened here is uh, in the budget, House lawmakers have added $760,000 in the budget to allow the Department of Agriculture to get to work on this, to get to work on standards and to, you know, put together the rules around it for everyone to, to, to be able to sell, not everybody, but, you know, public dairies, milk dairies, to sell raw milk and raw products um, hmm. starting on July 1st of this year. So this is kind of that next step. Legislation's passed, but now you've got agencies who are going to have to execute this, in this case, the Department of Agriculture. Very interesting. Actually, this is something that we're going to take a, no pun intended, but it is, a closer look at um, in the future <laughs> weeks because i got to tell you, you know, there's a lot of folks from safety measures say look raw milk is not good for human consumption but we'll talk all about that wab political reporter raul bali is always joining us live from the steps of the georgia state capitol what y'all just chilling just sitting on the steps yeah, we're just, having a grand old time we it's are having a, yeah i'm finishing up my uh my diet cherry coke and we'll get back to work i'm gonna go find that gambling bill hopefully it's been printed by now to, to drink some water yeah you're right I didn't bring my water bottle. Or my bathing suit. <laughs> I love those two. Thanks, guys. Bye, Rose. Bye, Bye Rose. Bye. We're back. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. There's an ongoing conflict in the African nation of Cameroon. It's a civil war known as the Anglophone Crisis. It's been going on for a few years now, actually since late 2016. It's estimated at least 6,000 people have died in this conflict, and nearly 765,000 have been displaced. That's according to a February 2022 report by the International Crisis Group. And while some have fled to Nigeria, others have sought asylum in other countries, including the United States. But an investigation by Human Rights Watch revealed torture and other abuses that many of these Cameroons have fled but they were sent back and they had to endure. It is horrible, it is terrible, but my heart bleeds knowing that the American government know the shambled crisis we are facing in Cameroon and sending my brothers and sisters back home. Cameroonians have come to the United States to escape ongoing humanitarian crisis, conflict, and human rights abuses in the country. Yet the U.S. has been deporting them back. Human Rights Watch spoke to a number of Cameroonians deported on two flights in October and November 2020. Nearly all were asylum seekers. Many were unfairly denied asylum in the U.S. despite credible claims of past persecution. After their return, many of those who were deported suffered serious human rights violations by Cameroonian authorities. And that gives you some insight as to what many, many were faced with. And as these black migrants are fleeing from their home countries to the U.S., there's reported information revealing these migrants are being treated unfairly by U.S. immigration officials. New internal documents obtained by advocacy and activist groups through a Freedom of Information Act cite between 
2020 and 2021, U.S. government officials discriminated against people from Cameroon and other countries who were seeking asylum. Luz Lopez, Senior Supervising Attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigration Justice Pro- Project, joins me now to talk about more. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it, Attorney. Thank you for inviting us. I want to back up a little bit because for folks that may not be familiar with this conflict in Cameroon, it's been going on since late 2016. Can you just give a brief sort of description of of what the civil war known as the Anglophone crisis is about? Yes. um, And thank you again for this opportunity. So um, what is happening in Cameroon is um, Cameroon is a former French colony. So uh, it was colonized by the French. Most of the country, um, well, technically all of the country uh, is supposed to be um, bilingual Mm -hmm. uh, and have adopted French as its official language. However, there is a small part of the country where um, there uh, are groups that do not uh, identify with French culture uh, and that colonizers, um, you know, language. So they uh, have uh, grown up speaking English Mm -hmm. that therefore the word Anglophone Mm -hmm. and they identify not just um, by language, but by customs and other traditions as a separate um, nation of sorts and have for, as you point out, Rose, for many years uh, sought uh, to, you know, exercise independence or at least freedom about who they are Mm -hmm. and their customs and their language. Um, And they have been violently oppressed by uh, the Cameroonian government. Um, They don't want uh, this group of Anglophones to um, in any way assert their rights. So as you point out, many um, of the folks from these Anglophone regions in Cameroon had uh, have been fleeing mm-hmm. initially to other countries in Africa. And eventually um, many have seen um, their way to the United States. And in the past, I would say since around 2018, we have seen significant increases mm-hmm. in the number of Cameroonian immigrants who are seeking asylum from the oppression, the violence, you know, the death that they are facing in their home country. And correct me if I'm wrong, there, there are, there's criteria that is involved when nations are looking at granting asylum. And usually it can be if there's civil war, if there's some type of persecution based on religion or, or gender or, or any other type of criteria. So through your lens, so the, 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 these Cameroonians who are fleeing would fit into those folks who should be granted asylum, correct? Absolutely. Um, in fact... We see Cameroonians seeking asylum that have faced much greater physical threats than, for example, Cubans who also come seeking asylum to the United States. Um, What our litigation, I'm a part of a litigation uh, for information under the Freedom of Information Act, the United States statute, right, Mm -hmm. Um, has shown is that despite the fact that many Cameroonians meet, easily meet the criteria for asylum grants in this country, they actually, along with black immigrants in general, Mm -hmm. face much higher rates of denial by U.S. immigration officials when they file asylum claims. And you all were combing through documents, emails. First, I want to back up. What led you all to even seek these type of documents through the Freedom of Information Act? Well, back at the at the end of 2020, um, we uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigrant Justice Project was involved in serving a large number of Cameroonians who were in immigration detention in the New Orleans ICE field office. Um, unfortunately, our country seems to ship especially our black immigrants to some of the largest detention immigration detention facilities in the south where they not only come uh to deal with racism because of who they are but historic racism because of the setting so we started investigating providing direct representation assistance to this large group of cameroonians um 
at the end of 2020, be, um, right before the trans, you know, the transition in power mm -hmm. from the Trump administration to Biden, um, Trump, I'm sure, <laughs> ordered um, a multitude of deportations, including um, large number of deportations to Africa. We would call them the death flights because we knew that most of these folks who were being loaded up and taken back, some of whom still had um, ongoing immigration cases. So this was you know, a violation not only of standing laws, but we knew they were being sent back to uncertainty, possible um, violence, uh, political oppression, and we wanted to figure out why this happened and why it continued. So they were here, some were here, and then they were de deported. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then as you all are combing through these documents, what did you read? What did you see here? Well, we saw many things that were of concern, Rose. One of the most striking, and I think uh, it's important for you know people to know what our government is doing, is that the government hasn't disclosed everything that we've asked for. Uh, and those things that they have disclosed are very concerning. For example, we have diplomats, um, Department of State officials referring to African immigrants who are being repatriated in very derogatory terms, referring to the countries where they are uh, being repatriated to um, in very racist terms. Um, and there was one particular email chain that talks about these human lives um, as if they were a sport. Oh, you know, we lost one. Now we're 0 for 2. Let's try to get another one. Um, you know, let's try to get another load of folks deported. And who, and so, who was this? Who, what officials or what entity of uh, what department can you are you uh, attributing this to? Well, the emails that were released were from the U.S. Uh, government. They were ICE officials as well as Department of State officials, uh, as we could tell from their signature blocks. Did you all contact U.S. immigration ICE officials to, to talk to you all about this? Well, we're in the middle of the FOIA litigation. So the FOIA litigation seeks to obtain the information mm -hmm. from the government once we have that information. We and other groups will assess how best to address and remedy these concerns. So, but for now, I imagine you all may have some remedies in sight. What are you all, I mean, can you speak with the Biden administration about this? Or do you feel like you have enough proof in these documents that through your lens suggest or, or prove that there is blatant discrimination when it comes to black migrants? Rose, the Biden administration is fully aware, not just of the documents that have been released, but the report that you played uh, for your uh, listeners earlier on, the Human Rights Watch report. Mm -hmm. uh, we have numerous studies that show um, that Black immigrants face uh, the highest rates of asylum denials, of um, negative credible fear findings, which are essential so that you can, you know, eventually be granted asylum. We, not just SPLC, obviously, we're in partnership with many other advocacy groups, um, some of whom have used this to obtain temporary protected status for Cameroonians who are still here. In terms of redress for those who unfortunately were sent back, there are ongoing investigations, not led by us, but by other partner organizations. So there is movement. Um, what we are seeking to do, however, is to get this administration, the Biden administration, to be more transparent mm -hmm. and to recognize that even after the transition, there still continue to be significant discrimination, significant issues um, that are um, leading to, you know, these very discriminatory, disparate results when it comes to black immigrants requesting asylum. And we should note that Closer Look reached out to the White House and ICE officials. We have not, we did not receive response from either. So just wanted to put that out there. I want to go back to something um, because in April of 2022, the Biden administration shielding some, shielding some Cameroonians from deportation through this temporary protected status program. 
but it only lasted for about 18 months. Can you explain this further and what happened here? Uh, with temporary protected status, what usually happens is that the United States executive decides, okay, we are going to allow this group of persons from this particular country or region to remain here because there is an existing conflict or natural disaster or, you know, mm -hmm. there's some sort of social upheaval. With Cameroon, groups had been begging, advocating for years um, for the you know, White House to grant uh, temporary protected status to Cameroonians. And finally, you know, we will acknowledge that the Biden administration did finally do so. Mm -hmm. That status does expire within 18 months. However, it can be extended repeatedly. We have some countries, for example, like El Salvador, um, where folks have been, uh, in, you know, under temporary protected status since 2000. So at least it does provide some modicum of relief and opportunity, but it's not enough mm -hmm. because obviously we are still deporting people to Cameroon. And for our listeners who may not be aware with the process, with the asylum process, how long does it usually take um, for someone to be granted full asylum? Well, the process itself is very long. Mm -hmm. um, and currently, because of the backlog, we have a backlog of thousands and thousands of cases, it is an even longer process. And obviously that in itself is of concern um, because there hasn't been much movement in terms of clearing that backlog. Uh, but, you know, how it affects, how it, it negatively impacts Black immigrants, you know, I think that in this country, because of our history, um, our uh, unfortunate history of discrimination against Black persons, mm -hmm. um, that just infects everything we do. And um, my heart breaks. You know, I, I heard uh, the uh, story you shared before you and I started, you know, this conversation. And you have people fleeing from horrible circumstances, seeing this country as a beacon of hope and landing in places like Louisiana. I mean, Georgia has the largest immigration detention facility in the country, Stewart mm -hmm. um, detention, you know, facility. Uh, coming into the Deep South in many instances and being um, discriminated and um, oppressed just as they were back home. Mm -hmm. Luz Lopez, Senior Supervising Attorney for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Immigrant Justice Project. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We're going to follow up with this. Uh, we also want to note that we did reach out to members of Georgia's congressional delegation, and apparently nobody wanted to talk to us as yet about this. So we will stay on this. Attorney Lopez, thank, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's called a gray wave. So hang with me because that's one way to describe the U.S. population growth among a particular age group. I'll get to that in a moment. But check this out. Folks 16 years of age and older. Okay. Folks aged 25 to 54. A group economists call prime age workers increased by 40,000 in 2022. And I have to tell you that producer Daniel did not like that term prime age workers. Meanwhile, the number of Americans 65 and older, well, that jumped by 2 million, hence the gray wave. Well, a new report is connecting an aging population as a big reason for the worker shortage that's helped fuel inflation over the past 18 months. So let's take a deeper dive and welcome from Atlanta's Federal Reserve, John Robertson. He's a senior policy advisor and economist. Welcome. Hi, Rose. Pleasure to be here. Yes, producer Daniel did doesn't understand the prime age worker, but we'll yeah, get she, that. <laughs> you can blame economists for coming up with. I will Let, listen before we get to that. I want to just get your thoughts. We are expecting another inflation economy data report this week. If you looked into the John Robertson crystal ball, what are we going to possibly know that we already don't know, or may not know? It's, I think it's really hard to say because so many prices are moving around more, you know, so much more than they have in the past. And so how that balances out 
is is a little unclear. I mean, the trend over the last year has been slowing in the headline inflation report, but it, but a lot of that is still to do with big movement, like used car prices moving a lot, um, get price of gasoline coming mm-hmm. down, things like that. So listen, when you talk about these prime age workers, again, 25 mm-hmm. to 54, are we saying that they're just that they're not growing in terms of coming to the workforce or they just been slow in getting a job? Because Daniel was again offended that are you saying his folks aren't working? It's actually a little bit of both. I told him that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so part of it is just as a as a population group. So why they tend to be called prime age mm-hmm. is because that age group, 20, 25 to 54, is usually, is that's kind of like the sweet spot where the highest proportion of people are working. Mm-hmm. Right? You're most, that's, if you're younger than that, there's a good chance you're in school. And if you're older, then you're starting to move to, closer to, to the retirement ages. And, uh, and so, uh, so typically, you just get growth in that supply of labor just from the growth in the population of that. But just be, just the way the demographics have worked out, hmm. that that population group is not growing very much at all. And in fact, the CBO just came out with projections last week that say it's not going to grow that much even over the next decade. Really? Yeah. So what you rely on more is the participation of that group and getting that up, right? So if it's currently around 80%, that's actually down, mm-hmm. right, from two decades ago. Uh, and it took a long time to recover after the last big recession, the mm-hmm. Great Recession. And it came down again during the pandemic. And so meanwhile, to fill in the gaps that Daniel and his folks, since they don't want to work, <clears throat> we know mm-hmm. that those <laughs> close enough to retirement age, during the height of the pandemic, decided to, he said, you know what, I'm just going to make this official earlier than it be- than expected, and therein lies the rub. Yeah, it's, and it's really interesting uh, that underneath all this, the story really began around 2008. 2008 was when the first edge of the baby boom generation mm-hmm. turned 62, and, and hence first became eligible for Social Security, right? And so you would have actually expected, just based on the demographics, the population growth in, of that age group, that you get more retirements. But you actually we got less retirements than we expected, mm-hmm. probably in part because of the Great Recession wiped out the savings of so many families that it, that it forced people to work longer. And then also other shifts like it's more jobs, uh, less labor, less physically demanding that allows people to work longer. Mm-hmm. So we actually got grow- less retirements than we would have expected during that decade of 2010 to 2020. And then COVID came and a lot of people <laughs> who were already of retirement age, it appears that they kind of reevaluated whether they really wanted to to work anymore. So between 2008 and, and- 2020 folks had to work a little longer because of the fallout from the great recession but then the pandemic comes and they said you know what i can't deal with this again maybe i have enough now i'm going to retire and you're also saying look the last 18 months with inflation this population that 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 group that's contributing to where we are right now i mean i want you to connect the dots for our listeners yeah so i mean when the when lockdown happened in 2020 we essentially had about a year's worth of retirements over a couple of months, right? So about a million, we had about a million people more retired than you would have expected just based on demographics and pre-pandemic behavior. And 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 that's really coming from two two sources. There's I've, I've read news reports that, that talked about like a wave of early retirements. Mm-hmm. That wasn't really it. Yeah, sure, there was some there was some early retirement, but really it was people who were already of retirement age, people sixty-five to seventy-five years of age who was who were working still. They left, and a, a large number of them left, 
And then there's also a kind of a flow that comes in the other direction of people who are currently retired who decide they want to work, right? And, you know, people, they want to pick up some part-time work mm -hmm. or, you know, perhaps, perhaps their financial situation isn't as good as they thought it was going to be, so they have to come back to work. Well, that also went down. So you got more exits and you get less entries, and that caused a surge in, in retirements, particularly amongst people 65 to 75. If you're saying that it could take 10 years before that prime worker age group, that prime age population, to sort of fix where we at right now, it, it needs to rise significantly to get to that pre-COVID level? Is that what you're saying? Like we need these folks to enter the workforce and be working, but we need yeah we need more we need more people. I mean, and the 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 tricky thing is it's just so hard to predict behavior. Like so yeah so I you know I can tell you the demographics and the the, the population numbers, mm -hmm. but it's how those people choose to behave in terms of being in the workforce or not in the workforce that will really matter. And so we saw just like just before the pandemic, the last three, you know, 2016 through 2019, we saw fairly rapid growth, unexpectedly rapid growth in the labor force that was brought about probably in part because of the tightness of the labor market, mm -hmm. right? The labor market was tight and that was a, it was a good time to be in the workforce. And uh, like the worst thing that can happen to somebody who's working is to lose their job. Sure. Right. Well, in a tight labor market, the chances of you losing your job goes down. Mm -hmm. right? And that keeps you engaged in the labor market. But it's interesting because women left the workforce at an alarming rate during the pandemic. We know this. And often many had to take on some duties, but they have not yet returned as well. So you, you factor in that population you factor in this retirement population, and then we're looking at inflation and all this. Is it a recipe for disaster? I mean, is there any other metric or any other indicator that could help this situation other than saying we need these prime age workers to get into the workforce? We need, uh, yeah, we need we need more of that. I mean, one, one it's actually related to your to your previous story uh, is immigration. That's a that's another channel through mm -hmm. which you can grow the workforce um, without having to wait for babies born today for another you know twenty five years <laughs> for them to be in the workforce, right? So immigration is a channel, and immigration actually, I mean, so immigration was another thing that was affected significantly during the pandemic. Uh, our our borders were temporarily shut, and mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't want to come during you know until it was safe we've actually seen a kind of a resurgence in immigration um at least the data i've been looking at suggests that it's it's kind of come back but it it's kind of come back to the pre-covid trend but the thing is the pre-covid trend isn't enough <laughs> pre-covid trend needs to be higher to kind of make up the gap that's come about because of this excess retirement let me ask you, are you all able to determine if there are some specific, specific industries that might be more that are, are filling the crunch of this more than others? I mean, the last couple of weeks we've been doing a lot with the tech uh, layoffs. And, and also we know that restaurant workers did not return. Uh, a big percentage of restaurant workers did not return uh, after the height of the pandemic. Any other sectors that you all are seeing that, that might really feel the brunt of this gap here? in terms of workers? Um, it's a good question. I don't think I could specify off the top of my head, sure. but I think that certainly we heard lots of stories about uh, the hospitality, leisure hospitality industry, mm -hmm. restaurants, hotel, everybody was de you know desperately sure that those workers did not come back. Um, and part of that is a is almost like almost a good news story as well because part part of the other thing we've seen in the labor market is that people leaving their jobs voluntarily to go to another job is almost at a record high level, right? So the tightness of the labor market has actually created opportunities for people to leave 
a lower paying job for a better paying job, possibly by changing industries. Uh, but that's that helps them as individuals. It doesn't help that industry that they're leaving if they if they can't replace it. In other words, trying to f- figure out this equation of the labor supply equals X of the demand. It's exactly it's it's, it's, right. it's a tough one. So 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 we kind of got both things going on, right? Mm-hmm. We got demand is high. Well, these firms are trying to hire. Uh, people are people have money they want to spend, but we are but. We also have supply that is not really even fully recovered from the from the pandemic, let alone kept up with the growth in demand. So what is your message to Daniel's group, this 25 to 54? What do you want them to know? That they're ruining they're ruining the economy? <laughs> I don't think I don't think blaming them. Oh, let's blame gonna, them. No, I'm just kidding. It's gonna help. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's figuring out the reasons why people don't in, work don't mm-hmm. engage with the workforce and why why it's so high is important because if we understand that better then we maybe can figure out ways to get rid of those impediments that are absolutely. stopping people from working who would otherwise work absolutely atlanta's federal reserve john robertson a senior policy advisor and economist thank you so much for taking the time good conversation we really appreciate the good work you all do over there And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Rezell, and Pat St. Clair. Tiffany Griffith is our supervising producer. Our engineers are Kevin Rinker and Sawyer Vanderworth. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Or if you want to know why Daniel's not working, hit him up or I'll just pass along. But Daniel is working. It's some of his other people. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Now, stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.